0: Oh, Welcome everyone, this is Torah Portions. I'm Sean, your host. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. You're watching this on Kingdom of Context. This is our weekly Bible study where we're digging into Genesis through Deuteronomy. We also have a lot of companion passages that we feel complement and help expand the story. Today we're going to continue searching out the rest of Genesis, chapters 48 through 50. It's going to be exciting and we actually have a guest to join us today. Um, This is our brother Vaderberry. He's going to be joining us for reading and discussion today. Uh, Vader, you might have to mess with your mic. We can't hear you right now. Vader, can you hear me? We can't hear you.
1: There we go. I'm so sorry about that, guys. Uh, hey, thanks for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here and reading these uh, Torah portions with you. Super excited for it. So, uh, yeah, thanks cool. for having me here.
0: Cool, yeah. Thanks for joining me today, brother. My pleasure. All right. So we are picking up Genesis chapter 48. We're still in the story of Joseph reigning as vice president basically of egypt and uh his he's now moved his whole family jacob and all his brothers down to the land of goshen and i think this is where we pick up today so you're the uh, guest of honor today do you want to take up and read the first chapter
1: yeah absolutely so we're in uh genesis 48 uh one through five and then it says sometime later joseph was told your father is ill so he set out with his two sons Manasseh and ephraim Uh, When Jacob was told your son Joseph has to come with you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz and in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me and told me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a multitude of peoples and will give you this land to your descendants after you uh, as an everlasting possession.'" And now your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here shall be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Messiah uh, shall be mine just as Reuben and Simon are mine. And then it goes on uh, 6 through 10. Any children born to you after them shall be yours and they shall be called by your names of the brothers in the territory they inherit. Now, as before, uh, uh, as for me, when I was returning from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died along the way in the lane of Canaan, some distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, uh, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are the sons God has given me in, in this place. So Jacob said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now Israel's eyesight was poor because of old age. He, hardly, uh, he could hardly see. Joseph brought his sons to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. And then continue on. I, will never exp- uh, I was never expected to see your face again, Israel said to Joseph. But now God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph removed his sons from his father's knees and bowed uh, face down. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim in his right hand, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and put it in the hand of Ephraim, the younger. And crossing his hands, he put the left hand of Manasseh's head, although Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May God, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel has redeemed me from all harm. May he bless these boys, and may they be called by my name and by the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow in multitude upon the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, He was displeased and took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to um, Manasseh's, excuse me. Now, so my father, uh, no, not so my father, Joseph said, this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. I know, my son, I know, he said, he too shall become a people and he too shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be the greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So that day Jacob blessed them and said, By you shall Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he took Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Look, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And to you as one who is above your brothers, I give the ridge of land that I took from Amorites with my sword and bow.
0: All right. Thank you, Vader. My pleasure. Appreciate that. It's a good chapter here. We got um, some interesting little concepts here in this chapter. And um, obviously Jacob is on his deathbed. He's getting close to dying and he's going to be looking at, uh, he he basically wants to kind of say his last goodbyes and last, last words to everyone. this is a kind of going back to the promise we read a few chapters ago where the angel of the Lord, through you know, God through this angel told Jacob, um, it's okay that you go down to Egypt. You're going to die there. Joseph's going to close your eyes, but he'll bring you back and bury you here in the land of Canaan. So don't worry. And so, um, that was just a good reassurance for Jacob. Now some of that prophecy is uh, coming true in Jacob's life. He's getting a little older. He's about to die. And, um, just as a summary goes here for everyone following along, just, to, just as a reminder, guys, you can get these uh, these tour portion slides and these breakdowns for free at our Patreon. The, the link is in the video description below. Um, you actually do not have to be a Patreon to go and download these PDFs of these if you want to keep them for your own personal studies at the house. Um, so you guys can get that at Patreon. Uh, it's the link in the description. Here in the summary for 48, it says Jacob became sick and Joseph went to Goshen to visit him. Uh, Jacob recounted to Joseph the experiences he had with the messenger of Yahweh, uh, the messengers, I should say, and the promises Yahweh spoke to him in the land of Canaan. That was kind of interesting part, Vader. What I saw in this chapter is this um, this right here in verse 15, where he, he says he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. And then he's gonna, he's going to expound, right? The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm. So he's a lot of people like to think that this is like a pre-incarnate Yeshua. A lot of people, yeah, they think that this is like God himself, God, the father. Um, I personally think it's speaking more of the authority structure, which all these ancient people existed inside of an authority structure, right? So they had this kingdom kingship mentality where, you know, they understood there was always, no matter what land they went to, there was always a king. And they had servants of that land that did the will of the king. And so they would abide with respect to those servants the same way they would that king. Um, We see Jacob throughout his life speaking about these messengers that show up to him in that same regard. He refers to them as Elohim, which is what this word God means. So to me, you know, this is this is hard to prove. But, you know, except for when you just go to the original Hebrew text. Well, let me let me expound real quick. Total. The Hebrew text in verse 15, the original Hebrew or the, at least the Hebrew that we have from the Masoretic and um, and the Greek, it, it'll just say this this is a Theos or this is the, the the Elohim, right? And it's not capitalized. All these capitalizations is that modern English language concept and those are inserted by translators. So that's the thing that's hard to prove is, is the intent of a translator who sees this word Elohim in the Hebrew that is translated as capital G-O-D. And then you start to say, okay, well, why did he capitalize that god that's not in the text that's what we call a translator insertion that's his own opinion of why he wants to stress the importance of that god um because the the rest of the text like in verse 16 it tells you you know it's an angel who redeemed you from all harm this is this is what we've seen in the last few chapters these angels keep appearing to joseph that and specifically to jacob the angel that told him when before he went to laban's house he assured him you can go to laban's house i'll be with you and i'll bring you back so if this is the same messenger sent by God to protect him all of his days, just like Abraham and Isaac, this will make perfect sense why he's referring to this Elohim. And then he calls him an angel who redeemed him from all harm. So it's just an interesting paradigm that they all existed in. Like they still give the glory and the credit to Yahweh, the almighty, you know, but they just also understood his messenger's was like a a representation of him at the time, you know?
1: Yeah, and a good example of that is like, if a king of an actual nation sent an army, like a little, you know, brigade to watch over, you know, like a town or whatever, the people would think the king is protecting me. They wouldn't think, "Oh, each individual soldier." They would they would give it the glory to where it was coming from, uh, which is what I feel like he's doing here um, in it. Is yeah, it, it's God, but it's sent. It's not. It may not. Act, it to me, it doesn't seem to actually be God because it's an angel who redeemed him. Um, and just a little caveat: I was talking about uh, Enoch and um, and uh, Michael being. Uh, it says that he is over the best part of mankind. We talked about this on the stream last night, and uh, how he, how in Daniel uh, twelve, I believe it was saying that uh, that Michael stands for the children of Israel, right? So it's like we know that the best part of the uh, of of mankind, of course, the Father's going to protect that, and he sends Michael to do that. So I totally, so awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this is where. You know, we don't we get uh, one of the guy's names was Penuel several chapters ago um, that he wrestled with, you know, uh, but you also, you know, start to wonder because he says he met Saul and an encounter with multiple angels at different times. Um, but there's this one that seems to have consistently showed up with him and um, who would have been there uh, to uh, and, like uh, see over or affirm the transfer of the priesthood and the sacrifices that are being made and things like that. So it's interesting to see that. I wonder if that was Michael. You just, you just have to wonder if he was the one that was running running around and being sent to do that kind of stuff.
1: And then it it gives me a little, uh, a little mercy or I don't know how to say it, but uh, towards, I think it's seventh day Adventist or is it Jehovah witnesses that believe Michael and Jesus are the same but it kind of like it, it smooths that out for me. Like, okay, I can understand why they have that misunderstanding of connecting those two um, as opposed to be like, where do they get this from? Uh, it it kind of makes sense, but it, I don't believe it at all. Anyways. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I understand. They, well, that would come, you know, that, as far as I can understand, they do have a very different understanding of the son of God. And in that case they would under, they think that he somehow changed identities Um throughout time and yeah Yeah. i agree with you i don't i don't agree with their theology either so um but that you know just as in people that are not jehovah's witnesses um Mm -hmm. in in modern day church and also in Torah observant communities a lot of them believe that this every time we see an angel in the old testament it must be jesus yeah you know and you're like "Ah, that's you know that's not either it's not that's also not what it says so what does the actual text says these are messengers that are created by yahweh that were sent to the earth uh, the, to, to help mankind, as Hebrews 1.14 tells us. Um, this is their job. Um, this is why they were created. And uh, Yeshua was sent at the, appoint, at the appointed time, at the fullness of time, uh, to become our high priest. And so it's, yeah, very different purpose, very different mission for why he was sent, which means there's different time qualifiers, there's different concepts for why he's sent. So we also have here, uh, Jacob has instructed Joseph to consider his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh as Jacob's boys Now this is kind of a twist right here that Joseph didn't see coming Joseph's future sons will inherit land with Manasseh and Ephraim's portions in the land of promise so what Jacob is doing here is he's saying look I want you you know he's got this apportioned land that he knows he's going to be delving out to the to the 12 tribes But he actually says, but because Jacob, or excuse me, because Levi is actually not going to receive its own portion of land, it's going to be spread out in the midst of the other tribes. Um, Well, then you've got an open spot, so to speak. So Ephraim throughout scripture is commonly associated with Joseph. It's kind of interchangeable. Joseph and Ephraim is the same land portion. But then that leaves an opening of land that is given to Manasseh that fills up the 12 portions of land. And so this is where Jacob tells Joseph, look, these two boys, if you had Ephraim and Manasseh, just consider them as mine because I'm going to give them a land of a promise, a portion in the land of promise. Any boys you have after this, they be considered yours, and then they'll, get, they'll inherit land within Manasseh and Ephraim's territory. So it's just an interesting way that Jacob was doing this, and I think the only reason he would do this was because of what we talked about in previous portions where the book of Jubilees in chapter 32 tells us the angels that encountered Jacob, they actually gave him tablets from heaven, explaining to him what would befall his sons till the end of the age. And so, this was kind of interesting that he would know. It seems like this would be the best place where he may have gotten that kind of direction to know how to do this. Um, that's just my thoughts. What about you, brother? Any thoughts on that?
1: that yeah, that's really interesting. Um, now, I did uh, start on Jubilees, like I told you would. So, I'm not. I'm qu- not quite there. I'm really soaking it in because it's quite a bit of you know like i i almost am like reading it and then going back to scripture and being like whoa whoa you know type yeah. of deal so um it's a it's a slow process but it's been pretty fulfilling um but uh yeah i one thing about that that kind of stuck out to me when when i was reading it um is how uh like uh joseph came and was like you know, like no, this that you got the wrong people, and he's like, no, 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 chill. I don't got, I don't have the wrong, and it actually kind of gave me uh chills because it was like, like I see that that as a father, like no, like that this is my firstborn. Um, uh, but then like the the humbleness of the way that uh, he answered him was so beautiful. So, but specifically with an angel coming and t- telling him what will befall him, that kind of makes that even what i was saying a little bit deeper um knowing the blessing uh so we're i have a question do you think he got the the insight before this blessing or after the blessing
0: uh it would be before if jubilee's 32 that because jubilee's 32 was like uh, approximately i think almost 20 years earlier because um because that was when he saw the the ladder going to heaven the angels ascending and descending Okay, okay so that that was in the in the area of bethel so if i'm remembering correctly and i believe this is what he passed on the priesthood to levi so yeah it was definitely before this because this is at the very end of jacob's life he's about to die
1: he's about to die okay yeah because that's yeah. interesting because knowing him knowing what he knows is going to befall his brothers it's almost like or his sons not his brothers that that kind of act of like no this is the blessing um it's kind of interesting it was like He was trying to correct it, but Israel knew the correction, like knew the way it should have been. And Joseph was like trying to kind of do it his way almost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, this is coming from Jacob, who had received the blessing uh, and the firstborn inheritance over Esau in his life. Exactly. So it's it's kind of, you know, Jacob, Joseph may have been like, wait. You've, you've gotten confused all your life. This is not how we do it. you know switch your hands up. you know you're, Ephraim is the, you know and he's like, no, no, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing. Sure. So it's kind of interesting that it's Jacob chosen to do this to Manasseh and Ephraim because that's kind of what ended up happening in his life as well. So we also have that um, because Jacob laid his hands on Ephraim, Manasseh blessed Manasseh over Ephraim, which is opposite of the tradition of the firstborn. and Jacob also revealed his soon coming death to Joseph. And he gave Joseph the portion of land in Canaan he won in battle from the Amorites. And this is not a big sticking point of any kind, but this is interesting in the text right here in verse 22. If you actually look in the Hebrew, this word, the ridge of land, he says, I give you or I give the ridge of land that I took from the Amorites with my sword and bow. Well, that word ridge of land supposedly is translated from the word Shechem. Which I think is interesting, right? We had an entire chapter about Shechem and all the mm-hmm. deeds that went down there and how they those people uh, stole Dinah and kidnapped her, raped her. And, you know, Simeon Levi went in, and just killed everybody, took all their possessions and everything. And, and um, so I, I, I've i wondered, and it's hard to, again, this is another hard thing to prove because the, the words sound similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it can mean a ridge of land, but it all, that could be the literal name of why they named that town Shechem because it could have totally. been a hillside on a ridge of land. So it's interesting to me that um, it's this. This says a ridge of land instead of calling it Shechem. It's up for debate. Either way, um, it's interesting that he's. We don't actually see this battle that he took with the sword and bow from the Amorites because the story of Shechem is that Simeon and Levi went and took it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's fascinating that there is there's actually some interesting stuff here, and this leads us into one of our special segments. Come, let us reason together. All right. So, Vetterberg, this, this concept here is not in Genesis. And this is what I'm, I'm excited to hear that you're you know, jumping into Jubilees and trying to dig into that a little bit, because you're going to find that it, it makes so much more sense of some of the things we see in Genesis. This particular chapter and verse, uh, chapter 48, verse 22, is one of those where we don't see a place in Genesis where Jacob actually fights the Amorites. But you do in Jubilees. So it's very, very fascinating in my opinion. And so we have here in Jubilees 37, there's an actual moment where um, while they're living in the land, you have uh, the Amorites, they band together. And let me find the place real quick. So I believe it's right here. And now let us hearken together Let's send Aram, Philistia, Moab, and Ammon. Oh, I'm sorry. One second. This is the wrong. One second, guys. This is the wrong the wrong little, uh, chapter. That was, well, that was where Esau attacks him. Let me go to this right chapter here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically the, uh, the Amorites are in, oops, i sorry. My internet's running really slow real I don't know why. The Amorites are, um, they're not happy with Jacob for whatever reason. And they try to attack him and, and steal from him. Let's see if I can go to this real quick. Oh, sorry. It was 34. And here we go. All right. So here in 34, Jubilee's 34. Talks about the sixth year of this week in the forty-fourth jubilee. Jacob sent his sons to pasture their sheep, and his servants with them in the pastures of Shechem. So this is in that same region, right? Just as we're wondering about this this translated word, the seven kings of the Amorites assembled themselves together against them to slay them, hiding themselves under the trees to take their cattle as prey. And Jacob and Levi, Judah and Joseph were in the house with Isaac their father. So this is even before Joseph was was sold. Right. So this is he's still uh, under 17 years old at this point. So he's still a teenager. Um, and it says they could not leave him. And Benjamin was the youngest. And for this reason, remained with his father. And there came the kings of Tafu, of Arasah of Saragon, of SeLo of Gaz, and the king of Bethelon, the king of Manasakur. Now, these are all Greek translated to English transliterated words. That's why they sound so weird. But all those who dwell in these mountains and who dwell in the woods in the land of Canaan. So this, this is like the entirety of this region assembled itself together and was like, we need to take out this family of Jacob. And that's just crazy to me. So, you know, some people reason that this is, this is mentioned in uh, back in Genesis in the story of what happened with Dinah and Shechem. Um, they think that the, the little phrase that says uh, the terror fell upon the surrounding nations uh, for Jacob's family And so no one dared attack him. And so people think that that statement comes from this encounter in Jubilees 34, because after they did what they did to Shechem, the people got mad at them, came and attacked them. And then we're going to read how Jacob responds here. And then Jacob wins this battle and the terror falls around all the other people to leave him alone after this. Because so either way, it's. this is what Jubilees goes on to say that verse five, they they announced this to Jacob saying, Behold, the kings of the Amorites have surrounded your sons and plundered your herds. And he arose from his house, he and his three sons. That's Jacob, Levi, or that's uh, Levi, Judah and Joseph and all the servants of his father. That's going to be all the servants of Isaac and his own servants. And he went against them with six thousand men who carried swords. So what I think is fascinating about this there is that this gives us some more insight into like just how powerful of a man jacob was not many of us can just rally six thousand 6, guys, up, guys to, you know go, I mean?
1: to go round up uh some sheep you know some herds
0: well or had to have the courage so to go to after seven, seven allied kings of the nation around you who carried you
1: know? swords yeah yeah Totally. Yeah, so
0: this is this jacob was not a slouch like yeah. jacob was somebody in the land so was his father isaac so was abraham these were great men is what they would be considered
1: yeah and i think that has a lot to do with the fa- the fact that who their father was you know you know who their god was and he showed up for them over and over and other nations obviously saw that and got envious of it so anyways
0: yeah 100 percent. that's right so then he goes verse seven he said he slew them meaning they jacob rallied his dudes they went and attacked these seven Amorite kings and their forces. And he said he slew them in the pastures of Shechem, pursued those who fled. He slew them with the edge of the sword. He slew Arasa, Tafu, Saragon, Salo, Emenexir, Gagas. I don't know if I said that right. And he recovered his herds. And he prevailed over them and imposed tribute on them that they should pay tribute, five fruit products of their land. And he, real, he, he built Rabel and Temneteres. So I'm guessing those are cities. He returned in peace and made peace with them they became a servants until the day that he and his sons went down into Egypt. So I think this is fascinating because you've got all this backstory about how he asserted dominance in the land because of what happened in Shechem. So it's like the, you know, the Canaanites started it, man. Like he, Jacob was just chilling. They kidnapped his daughter. They did the, the grievous deeds, you know, man, they started it. And so then, Jacob had to finish that as Shechem. That that caused some other people to start some beef. Jacob had to finish that, and so then then when it's over, all the kings of of Canaan are subjected to him, and paying tribute to him. That means now he's even more powerful, and that sense of power doesn't stop until he goes down into Egypt. So what? I, just keep that in mind for everyone that's watching and listening because this is going to make more sense in chapter 50 at the burial of Jacob and how, you know, the the people of the land are, they don't mess with Joseph and the Egyptians and all the brothers that go back to bury Jacob in the land of Canaan. They just like let them mourn their father. They let them go through the seven days of burial and walk throughout the land without problems. Like it's, you know, because it it was Jacob's land, you know what I'm saying? Like, Uh so when Jacob was taken into the land of Canaan and he was there just as a sojourner with his family, But then before he left, he ends up ruling the entire place. So the enemy doesn't like that. You know what I mean? This is why hundreds of years later, once the Exodus has come, the the children of the Exodus come out of Egypt and are being taken back into this land. All those people that had that were remnants and the Amorites and the, the remaining Canaanites and the Amalekites and all those people that are in there. They had rebuilt their forces up and did not want the children of Jacob to return.
1: So like man why are you back here? I thought we were done with you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. they
1: knew what was gonna come. And I just wanted to add that like how beautiful it is how the evil one attacks, you know, uh attacks, you know, Israel, right? Like the literally the nation. And then not only is 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 Jacob blessed with more because of that, but then he literally blesses the other places, right? Because he goes back there in peace which is like most other, you know, kind of kings at that time, that's not how they operated. Right. Um, Right. So I think even that literally probably changed some of them uh, where it says that they became his servants where it wasn't necessarily like a, a slavery, but like a wanting to be um, a part of what he just accomplished basically.
0: Yeah. In in ancient times, I mean, we see this with the days of the Assyrians and the, and the Babylonians invading Israel and all the surrounding territory that they came in and burned everything. They burned their cities down. They burned their crops, their land, um, which was their their food sources. Right. Um, they which was their economy. They burned everything. A total devastation. Um, Jacob didn't do this entirely. Um, he, he went in, like you said, you know, he, he conquered the seven kings and, and their forces. But he does. He it says he built some cities. I'm guessing those are possibly military outposts. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just guessing it doesn't give us a lot of explanation, but at the same time, like you're saying, he just imposed tribute on them. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to kill all you, every single one of you and uh, push you out. This is why literally they're still there several hundred years later when, when his descendants return. Mm -hmm. So um, it's very interesting, very, very interesting to see how he does treat them with a sense of mercy. um, And as opposed to, Later, when Jacob, when uh, let me say this right, later when Joshua is instructed to go into the land of Canaan, he takes on 31 different kings over time. He doesn't show them mercy, he kills the kings, he kills all the men, you know, the sometimes even all the women and, and animals and children. But then other times, he would just take the, the women and children and re surplant them into Israel. Um, but but that was a total Instruction of Yahweh to go in and root them out because they had sinned to such a great degree and there was such wickedness there. It was like a different type of judgment struck and, by the Father.
1: And another thing, like to add on that is like you said, these same people had already met, you know, uh, Joshua's forefathers. They already know who these are. And um, I'm sure they, because they knew who they are, they had some type of history, whether oral or whatever. Um, to talk about the things that this group of people have done so they already know who these people they already know like what type of things that they can do through the you know through Yah, um and they like it's it's like basically when they left the area and went to egypt they just like reverted instantly back to their old behavior um and so and then amplified it through the time that they were away in Egypt. And when they came back, back, it was like hundred percent corrupted at that point. So totally yeah. makes sense for him to have to deal with it differently than the way he did before. And he gave them a lot of time to, to not go back into that behavior. So just,
0: yeah, they that. had a ton of time to repent and do what's right. And we still see, we're going to talk about that, you know, in the following week, there was still descendants um, that had left after the persecution, um, that left the land of Goshen, went back to the land of Canaan. Uh, so there was an intimate connection throughout this whole time period. I mean, this is why Moses's father Amram was from the land of Canaan, and because there was this, you know, interconnected travel and and dispersion that was happening. Um, and the the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, they all also knew that that land was promised to the to the J- Abraham and his descendants. Um, this is why they were. There by sedition according to jubilees They all knew that that lamb was not given To them and their family lines they were there By sedition they had broken the oath um, So anyway so let's Go into uh, if there's nothing else on that chapter We'll jump into 49 All right So let's see here in genesis 49 it Says then jacob called for his sons And said gather around so that I can tell you what will happen to you in the last days Come together and listen O sons Of jacob listen to your father israel Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Uncontrolled as the waters. You will no longer excel because you went up to your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly for they kill men in their anger and hamstring oxen on a whim. And that's a rough translation real quick, Bader Bear. I just want to let you know, verse six, they, they hamstring oxen on a whim. That's uh, check out other translations. This that there's this is a this is a very unique way of putting that other translations. They don't talk about it like that. First um, seven says cursed be their anger for its strong and their wrath for its cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a young lion, my son. You return from the prey. Like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and the allegiance of the nations is his. He ties his donkey to the vine, his colt to the choice branch. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the seashore and become a harbor for ships. His border shall extend to Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. He saw that his resting place was good and that his land was pleasant, so he bent his shoulder to the burden and submitted to labor as a servant. Dan shall provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. He will be a snake by the road, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heel, so that its rider tumbles backwards. I waited your salvation, O Lord. Gad will be attacked by raiders, but he will attack their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He shall provide royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine by a spring, whose branches scale the wall. The archers attacked him with bitterness. They aimed at him in hostility. Yet he steadied his bow, and his strong arms were tempered by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. In the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who helps you, by the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of the heavens above, with blessings of the depths below, with blessings of the breast and the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of the ancient mountains and the beauty and the bounty of the everlasting hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince of his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. These are the tribes of Israel. 12 in all, and this was what their father said to them. He blessed them, and he blessed each one with a suitable blessing. Then Jacob instructed them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bear me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron and the Hittite. The cave is in the field of Machpelah near Memri, in the land of Canaan. This is the field Abraham purchased from Ephron, the Hittite, as a burial site. There Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished instructing his sons, he pulled his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. All right, what an interesting chapter. Hey, after We look after this whole story, we see that Jacob is actually buried with Leah and not Rachel at the end of it.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Um, I thought it was the other way around. Apparently not.
0: Yeah. Just that, uh, rivalry between Jacob and Leah intensifies even more, even, even in burial. Um, <laughs> so this is a, this is an interesting chapter, right? He takes each child of his and he blesses them individually. Um, uh, this is, what are your thoughts brother after reading this?
1: Um, that it's, well, it's actually really interesting, um, because like, it's kind of describing them, uh, some of them with some kind of negative things. um, it, it can
0: seem like that, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, and then he blesses them after that, right? Like uh, Benjamin is a, raven- a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. You know that that could, and maybe it's just an English thing. It kind of sounds like he's he's uh, kind of sliding them, or the one where he's uh, saying that Dan uh is like a viper on the path that's gonna make horses heal so that the rider tumbles backwards um so there's a lot of kind of interesting things here and then some are set apart where it's just like asher's food will be rich he shall provide royal delicacies um so it, yeah it's it's kind of interesting um what what do you view like as the blessing is snake of the road and th- do you see that as the blessing is talking about
0: I I do see that very often in Scripture, people that are um, that are you know mighty in battle, they're referred to as animals who who can overcome. You know, um, yeah, because it's interesting, right? Because those particular children, uh, Dan and, and Benjamin, they get spoken of in that regard as if they are able. You know, they're somehow able to attack. I know a lot of people like to take this, and they they like to lead into other you know other theories about the tribes, but we have to remember that all the tribes rebelled. So even the Levites, you know, this is prophesied in Testament of, of Levi. And also we see it played out in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that even the priests and the Levites um, forsake the covenant, right? And they eventually translate to covenant, start worshiping Baal and Molech. Um, they, they're they literally responsible for killing the, the Messiah himself. Right? So like we see, even though, um, all the boys are, are spoken of with warmth by Jacob. I think the very ver- first verse kind of tells us, gives us an inclination, if you will, where Jacob says, he gathered himself, his sons to him and says, behold, I'm gonna tell you what's going to befall you in the last days. So this is also what we read throughout all the Testament patriarchs and in, um, and all those, the Testament patriarchs, they all claim that they read this information also in the book of Enoch that, each of their tribes would transgress and fight each other at different times and transgress the covenant. But, you know, some of them would be faithful and and they would still be to take part in the resurrection later. So it's interesting that I've always wondered, why does Jacob tell him Hamate was going to before in the last days? But then we have these little cryptic statements that he mm-hmm. gives for each tribe. That's not, it's not even like a big paragraph. It's like just one or two lines. It's like a little tweet. He gives them each, you know, and you're like, that's not a lot, man. Like, I just feel like there's more conversation we don't get here. Like, this is a weird summary, you know? Uh, like with Ruben at the very beginning, he, he's praising Ruben for his strength and how great he is. But then he's like, But you're not going to, you're not going to excel in that strength because you took my, you took Bill Haw, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's interesting to see like this. I, the, what he tells them, in my understanding, doesn't fit to what I would see if someone said hey let me tell you what's going to befall you and your boys to the, to the last days you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I've always wondered if this is not the full conversation that's had on this moment
1: when you kind of said that it made me think like um I wonder if there was like obviously we have some interactions here uh with father and sons right before this conversation happens and then taking into account that jacob knows kind of what's going to befall him it wouldn't surprise me that the reason why these these statements seem cryptic is because uh to them maybe individually they had had conversations before so when he said what he said it kind of spurred something in them. They're like, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about. So it, as to what you were saying, like having more conversations, like maybe these were more pointed for them individually than we understand. Um, just a thought.
0: Yeah, sorry, brother. Um, no, yeah, it's it's this is a highly debated chapter by people all throughout the time. Uh, because of the way it's it's it seems so cryptic and, and so, uh, so difficult in some regard. But um, I would suggest anyone studying at the house, and we did this last year in the Torah portion cycle where we reviewed more of the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. And I would suggest reading those accounts by each individual patriarch because they talk about how they all had studied the Book of Enoch and they all knew that their tribes, good and bad, that was going to happen down the road. Um, which would have been consistent with what Jacob would have been told as well, because he also had the book of Enoch. It says that in Jubilees 44, he passed mm-hmm. it down to Levi. Uh, it, in Jubilees chapter 21, Abraham passed it down to Isaac and Jacob. You know, So w- it's interesting that um, now, is it the same exact book of Enoch we have today? I don't think yes. so. Yeah, Because what we have today, they admit, is is a collection of like six different manuscripts that we now call the book of first Enoch. Mm-hmm. And some of it's actually the writings of Noah, not just Enoch.
1: And that's so, why like in sacred text it shows you all these different definitions because it's like these are people's guesses for the missing fragments or piecing it together so yeah we totally yeah. don't have the same thing that uh that they had uh, in that day for sure
0: yeah yeah all those missing texts like how how big of a book was it like that's just <laughs> it's um <clears throat> it's, it's very interesting so they all openly admit that they had read that each of their tribes were gonna have issues being obedient and it was going to cause problems. And that's why each of the sons of Jacob on their deathbeds, they continually say over and over to their grandsons and their sons, just guys, keep the commandments, just keep uh-huh. the commandments, <laughs> just make your life easy. just keep the commandments, please. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that Jacob uh, calls them forward and is like, Hey, I'm gonna tell you what's going to happen in the last days. And then uh-huh. gives them a bunch of short cryptic statements. So, um, He then wants to be buried in the same cave, the same double cave that Abraham purchased from Ephron, the Hittite, which is near this place called Mamre. And it's in the land of Canaan. So we're going to see this in the next chapter because, you know, the last verse here, Jacob dies. Um, And by the way, I would love for my death to be like this. You know, I would love to know, like, hey, I'm about to die. I get to say all your last words to everybody and then just like, Pull your feet into the bed and just be like, you know, you know, you're just like until what?
1: until resurrection. See, right.
0: <laughs> see you guys. See you guys until see. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's fat. and I love the fact that it says here he's gathered to his people. So this is what you see. This is my, you know, I would, I guess I should call it a theory that this is my theory that whenever we see that when people died and it says he's gathered to his people that means he's going to get resurrected in the covenant. Like otherwise you're not gathered to your people. You're gathered to the unrighteous side of Sheol where there's probably an amalgamation of people outside of covenant of Israel who are not your people who you know didn't like you or didn't and hated you. And you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not where you want to be gathered to. Um, So this is like a one last comforting to the reader and to those who also in Israel, just that, that little, quick little mention of hey this is the promise of the covenant is that you're gathered to the righteous side of sheol because those are the people be resurrected and glorified israel through the messiah so this is um anyway this is my under, my understanding of that little phrase that we see often Totally. but um other than that there wasn't a lot the lot in this chapter beyond that um did you have any last thoughts about this chapter
1: um no, we we can keep going. Uh there is like we could obviously sit here and talk about these like in just 2 hours by themselves. But yeah, let's keep going. Uh, I I'm I'm interested to keep moving.
0: Cool. All right, brother, you want to take 50?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um 50 uh Genesis 50. Then Joseph fell upon his father's face, wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So they embalmed him, taking the 40 days required to complete the embalming, and the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to the Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me swear an oath when he said, I am about to die. You must bury me in the tomb that I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father and and then return. Pharaoh replied, Go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear to do it. Then Joseph went to bury his father, and all the servants of Pharaoh accompanied him, the elders of Pharaoh's household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, along with all of Joseph's household, and his brothers, and his father's household. Only the children and flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen alike went up with him, and it was an exceeding large procession. When they uh, reached the threshing floor of uh, Atad, uh, which is across the Jordan, they laminated and wailed loudly, and Joseph mourned for his father seven days. When the Canaanites of the land saw the mourning at the uh, threshing floor of Atad, they said, "'This is a solemn ceremony of mourning by the Egyptians.' Thus, the place across the Jordan is called Abel-Mizrim. So Jacob's sons did as he had charged them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Mashpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abra, uh, Abraham had purchased from Ephraim the Hittite as a burial site. After Joseph had buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge? Then he will surely repay us for all the evil that we did to him. So they went, uh, sent word to Joseph, saying, Before he died, your father commanded, This is what you are to say to Joseph. I beg you, please forgive the transgression and sin of your brothers, for they did you wrong. So Joseph so now Joseph please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father when their message came to him Joseph wept his brothers also came to him bowed b- down before him and said we are your slaves but Joseph replied do not uh, be afraid i am in the place uh, am i am i in the place of god As for you, what you intended against me for evil, God intended for good, in order to accomplish a day like this, to preserve the lives of many people. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. So Joseph reassured his brothers and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph and his father's household remained in Egypt, and Joseph lived to an age of one hundred and ten. He saw Ephraim's son to the third generation, and indeed the sons of Makar, son of Manasseh, were brought up on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely visit you and bring up from this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath and said, God will surely attend to you. Um, And then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and they embalmed his body and placed uh, and placed it in a coffin in Egypt.
0: Thank you, brother. All right. Joseph is uh, also dying. And see, this is the interesting part of this chapter where we only get the, the last words of Jacob and Joseph, but none of the other brothers. This is where. If I was constructing a Bible, I would put the Testament 12 Patriarchs right here is Genesis 51, 52, 53, 54, 55. You know what I'm saying? Because then you get all the rest of the brothers dying on their deathbeds with their last words to their children, you know, as well as Joseph's full last words to his children instead of this short abbreviated part part right here. But um but yeah, this is interesting, very interesting because Jacob himself gets an Egyptian embalming. Like, you know classical mummified wrapped embalming you know like we see the we just normally people don't think about that when they think of like people in the bible Mm -hmm. you know as far as as far as ancient Mm -hmm. egypt um but apparently he got top top notch embalming so what it makes me think of vader is where is this cave
1: i know right Cause you, we know, find- like, you would know that it was Joseph too. Right. Cause like they'd yeah. probably have higher ghosts of his many colors and him, you know, like they'd have like his whole life right there in, you know, in graven stone. That would be so amazing to see. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. Think about this cave. It's got Abraham in it. It's got Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the other boys, Leah, you know what I'm saying? Like all these guys, it was a huge cave with a huge burial ground. Like, what, how big is this cave? What does it look like? What, you What's know, where's, of it? <laughs> where's the entrance? Because it, that land is still there. You know, no. I think that's, I think that's either in it's in modern day Israel or maybe in Jordan. I have to look at the boundary line. But, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, I just think that, you know, that would be a huge archaeological discovery.
1: I wonder if that's one of the things that it's talking about where like all hidden things will be made, like that will come to light before the end. Like that'd be really yeah, cool. let yeah. find something like that. Cause that'd be, you know, yeah. Like solid proof. Like, Oh, boom, here, look at all this. It says exact this. We found this exact same thing. Like it would, it would be amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a huge, huge discovery, right. Pulling out all these guys and especially if, if Joseph and Jacob themselves were embalmed according to how ancient Egyptians embalmed, you know, which was like high class level of, of, embalming mm-hmm. for, for their day, right? This is why they're still pulling out certain uh, certain mummies from ancient uh, Egypt and they're fairly well preserved, you know, considering they're thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. So it just makes me wonder, like, if they ever found this cave, could you, could you recognize Jacob and actually, you know, it'd be interesting. Um, I thought it was interesting that like I said earlier from the last chapter, like they had the um, the people of the land of Canaan, they saw this huge funeral procession coming through all these chariots, these horses, all the all the sons of Jacob, the whole family, um, the other Egyptians that went with them. And they go through the land of Canaan. And as it says, as we saw, that they went across the Jordan. So like that, that cave where they end up burying Jacob, they passed that cave and kept going east all the way to the Jordan and then crossed the Jordan and went to some place called the threshing floor of Atad. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that is or what that is. Um, I try to look it up. If anyone in the audience knows where that is, please, you know, you're welcome to put that in the live chat. But um, yeah, I, I don't have a clue what part of the other side of the Jordan that is. And I just, this is just speculation guys. So let's not run too wild with this, but it makes me wonder if that is the same region where John the Baptist and Jesus were baptizing people and were, if that, because they were on the other side of the Jordan, um, it just makes me wonder. Because, you know, why Why go there? Like, that's not a place that's mentioned anywhere previously mm-hmm. in any of this interactions of Jacob and his sons and Abraham and Isaac. But suddenly, out of nowhere, they're like, oh, we're going to take Jacob's body, Israel, we're going to his body, across the Jordan, upon burial, and mourn seven days for him at this specific location, and then take him back across the Jordan to his actual burial plot. <laughs> like, what's going on? Why are they doing this, you know? They already mourned for him 40 whole days in uh in egypt
1: yeah and another interesting part about that same part is how like uh it mentions the Canaans are like wow this is like a legit like procession like not that oh wow there's just a lot of people but they're like wow this this is actually it says this is a solemn ceremony of the mourning by the egyptians so it, that, that kind of statement makes me think that one, they've seen these types of things before, and then they could tell a difference between those ones they've seen before and this one, that this one seemed like legit and solemn. Um, so that's that's pretty interesting to see how much like we know how how uh, crucial a role Egypt is in, in all the things that go against the instructions of the father um, and so how, like you even saw these people from the same household, which is, makes even more sense when you get to Moses and you have the multitude, the mixed multitude coming out with Israel. Um, it was the same type of people who truly mourned, uh, probably their descendants that mourned for, um, Joseph and their forefathers, etc. cetera. So just, yeah,
0: thought. yeah, there's a unique, um, there's a unique statement in isaiah 19 where yahweh is speaking about israel assyria and egypt and he calls this in chapter 19 verse 24 and 25 he says on that day israel will be a third party to egypt and assyria and a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the lord of armies has blessed saying blessed is my is egypt my people and assyria the work of my hands and israel my inheritance So, I think that that is interesting how there's this unique stress put on the people of Egypt, as well as in Zechariah chapter 14, we see that the people of Egypt are singled out among all the other nations after the Messiah returns. Um, In chapter, let me see here, um, yeah, chapter 14 of Zechariah 14, verse 18, he says, And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague which the Lord strikes the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So like he, you know, in chapter 19 of Isaiah calls him his people, chapter 14, he's, he mentions them instead of just lumping them in with all the nations. He mentions them first as a highlighted priority. And he's saying that they need to also come keep the Feast of Booths. Very interesting. Like there's, there seems to be some sort of connection or some sort of special, you know, feeling there. And this is where a lot of, I've heard people theorize. I know, I know drop used to theorize um, that this was the land of creation itself. What used to be called the land of Elda in, in um, Jubilees. And no, that's not the land of Zelda, but it's the land of Elda <laughs> No Z. but uh, where Adam and Eve were actually pulled from the dust of the earth and then taken to the actual garden, you know? So it's an interesting thought because there's some, there's a lot of focus on Egypt. definitely
1: when you consider um like how egypt has been there it's been a staple country through thousands of years right um it's not like a lot of places that you know like northern european which you have nations rise and falling still to this day you know um but egypt has been a staple everyone like every country knows who egypt is you know what i mean so it's definitely a big part of the story
0: yeah, well, the land of promise is like goes into the, into the territory of Egypt to the where even to the Nile. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that Egypt extended to the east of the Nile in a large portion of area. So that means that is going to be inside the territory promised to Israel. You know, his inheritance, uh, which would be inside the, the premiers of the New Jerusalem. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very fascinating.
1: That's uh, another spin. Oh. did again puts another spin on you know love thy uh love thy neighbor you know when you're keeping the you know the the commandments of the father and then your neighbor is like complete debauchery uh in their in their civilization it's like nope you still got to love them you know like it's pretty hard (laughs) yeah Yeah. and and the and the the, like wait love them doesn't mean practice what they're practicing type of love
0: (laughs) exactly right love them according to yahweh's behavior stay true to that So we, I mean, don't we also see that um, when Jesus was born and his parents were fleeing persecution from Herod, they fled down to Egypt. Um, We also see in history, excuse me, it's not recorded in, in any of the books that we would consider scripture, but we see in history that Solomon built military outposts in Egypt down Elephantine Island, which is in the, in the Nile, it's in, in modern uh, Ethiopia today, I believe, um, or maybe Eritrea, but Elephantine Island, you know, was uh, a place where there's a lot of Israelites that went and traversed and lived and from because of this military outpost that was down there in Solomon's day. And then Levites even went down there during the Assyrian invasions, Uh, which was approximately, you know, 700 BC, even went down there and lived and flourished. And that's why there's still Levite families in Ethiopia today and Eritrea area today. So that was that would have been the northern kingdom of of Egypt back in the day. And a lot of people don't realize that that territory, which is what we would consider on the map in the southern part of the Nile, used to be considered the uh, what they call it, the upper kingdom, not the northern, but the upper kingdom of Egypt. And it was at one point the capital of Egypt. And now it's just uh, Ethiopian Eritrea area.
1: I think it was literally called the North, even though it's technically in the South. But
0: yeah, they had it backwards. Like they would call their lower kingdom closer toward the delta and the Goshen and the Nile, yeah. uh, where, the, where the Nile tributaries went into the Mediterranean. Yeah. But um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's very interesting that there's been a lot of interaction throughout time. Um, I mean, was it Numbers chapter eleven? Moses takes. An Ethiopian wife, you know that she would have been from Egypt's area, and
1: you and you just mentioned, uh, you know, the Ethiopians, uh, like the descend, the line the, of Levi, uh, and specifically Levi was given the Book of Enoch, and the uh, Ethiopians still have the Book of Enoch inside their canon. So, yeah, very interesting,
0: absolutely. absolutely, it's fascinating. So much history there that I'm sure when we all get to the Resurrection, like it's we're just gonna be amazed at just how how much that we haven't been told, you know, how much we didn't know. So it's just gonna be amazing for word nerds like me. It's gonna be amazing. (laughs) I'm gonna be excited about that. Um, So here, just as a quick summary, Genesis chapter fifty: Joseph had Jacob embalmed by the Egyptian physicians over forty days. The Egyptians themselves mourned Jacob for seventy days. Joseph requested permission from Pharaoh to take Jacob's body to Canaan for burial. Joseph and all the family of Jacob, along with many Egyptians, took Jacob's body to the threshing floor of Atad across from the Jordan and mourned him for an additional seven days. Jacob's sons then took him to the double cave near Mamre and buried him there. So this is an interesting interesting uh, ending culmination to Genesis, the book of Genesis, um, the story of the patriarchs. And what I love about the book of Genesis is that it is just absolutely chock full. Of all these patriarchs all the way back from adam all of them doing torah
1: mm-hmm.
0: Everywhere from all of it guys but it's wait good. wait
1: i thought i thought we didn't get torah told moses i'm sure
0: sh- yeah exactly right that's
1: what i was basically told uh, my whole life like i grew up you know baptist i guess because i grew up in texas and had a mixture of that and like basically agnostic from my father for a big portion of his life but um but yeah like when uh specifically with that like now actually because before i know i'm kind of going to caveat but but before i came to biblical cosmology i had to in my mind i had to interpret everything because i had to interpret it from genesis one so when it said you know for instance, to Moses, like do this Passover as for all generations. It's like, I could, ha- I could easily make that saying, oh, it's not me. It's talking about all generations of them. But then when I look at the actual word and I start, um, you know, breaking it down, it's like, no, he's talking to every single person, not just those in that line uh, of blood. So yeah, it's, it's so beautiful to go back there and see like, wow, all of the father's like people that he uplifted uh, he uplifted because they were following his commandments. They were that he said do these things and they did those things and then they were uh, blessed over and over accordingly. Um, So it's just so beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, going forward in the following weeks, guys, we're going to see the, the whole point of why the children of Exodus uh, children of Israel were brought out of Egypt through the Exodus was because of the faithfulness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the, because they were descendants of the promise, which means they were already in the covenant. They're descendants of the people that were in the covenant. There's no new covenant struck with them at Mount Sinai. The whole point of Pentecost was a yearly re-upping of the covenant as a renewal of the covenant. And this is why they had to be taught the commandments, which are the terms of the covenant, again, because they had lost them under their subjugation and oppression in Egypt over that time. But the whole point they're being saved is in honor of the covenant from Yahweh towards these faithful patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He tells them that over and over again. I'm doing this because because of your forefathers were faithful to me. You know, even though you guys are a wicked and adulterous generation, I'm going to do this because you had some incredibly righteous forefathers and I'm honoring the covenant. I promised to them. Oh, you're on mute brother i'm so
1: sorry yeah he's a god of his word so he has to do that it's like he's like hey y'all are getting blessed because of what your forefathers did not because of what y'all are doing um and that's that's very cool that he he kind of shows that then i think that kind of gives moses and aaron a little kind of kick like hey guys y'all need to." change up right and then we still see them struggle like they see the red sea part and then they're like oh let's 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 make this golden calf so Mm uh it's crazy and in like we were talking about egypt like before how like we were seeing this beautiful thing and how um it was used to bless joseph and all save all those people like all that happened for you know that one act of uh, basically hate from his brothers Um, but then to see them kind of grow in the heart. And then here we're what, 400 years later, and we see that they're completely subjugating that type of lifestyle to to live with the father as so much that they're not even letting them go and just do their thing, you know, just for a little bit and come back. They're like, Hey, we're servants. We'll leave. We'll come back. Just let us do our thing. And they still can't do that. Um, And so it's just, it kind of it you. What I like about that is it shows that the the Egyptian uh, nation, the people, like all like especially Israel, have gone over, gone through this over and over, where they're they're doing the right thing and then they slip up, and you see the cause, the the pain and suffering that comes from that, and then you see when they're doing the the what they're supposed to do, how even a quote unquote evil nation is blessed and is used to bless and save many people. So it's it's such a weird dynamic that happens there.
0: It, it really is. well said brother. well said. yeah and i i also like the fact that because of what yeshua did and he was perfectly faithful we get to be blessed we we're benefited from his faithfulness, you know. so it's yeah it's a great example. the book of genesis was a lot of fun. um it's you know it's a great study and it's it's a shame. it's truly a shame that Uh, Genesis isn't more isn't studied more alongside Jubilees because that's the way the ancient Israelites would have studied it, that time period of history and that segment of the word and all that, you know, the creation story and everything like that. So, and all the, the stories of the patriarchs and how they interacted in the covenant and were faithful to the commandments and uh, the Father blessed them ridiculously everywhere. We just, you know, those those two books together just give us great insight to all that, help us understand um, why we're going to see the events we start to see next week in Exodus. But f- other than that, we actually have some companion passages um, from Ezekiel and John. And unless there's anything else in Genesis 50, I'll jump in Ezekiel 34. That's it, that's it. All right, guys. So here in Ezekiel 34, we've got... It says the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and tell them that this is what the Lord God says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fat and sheep, but you do not feed the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bound up the injured, brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild beasts. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. They were scattered over the face of all the earth, with no one to search for them or seek them out. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Lord God, because my flock lacks a shepherd and has become a prey and food for every wild beast, and, sh- and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but fed themselves instead. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Behold, I'm against the shepherds. I will, rem- I will demand from them my flock and remove them from tending the flock so that they can no longer feed themselves. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I myself will search for my flock and seek them out. As a shepherd looks for his scattered sheep when he is among the flock. So I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places to which they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements of the land. I will feed them in good pasture, and in the lofty mountains of Israel will they will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the broken, and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd them with justice. This is what the Lord God says to you, my flock. I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink the clear waters? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Why must my flock feed on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied? Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Since you shove with flank and shoulder, but at all the weak ones with your horns until you've scattered them abroad, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be prey. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will appoint over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make them a covenant of peace and rid the land of wild animals, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers and season showers of blessing. The trees of the field will give their fruit, and the land will, produce, and the land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and delivered them from the hands that enslaved them. They will no longer be prey for the nations and the beasts of the earth will not consume them. They will dwell securely and no one will frighten them. And I will raise up for them a garden of renown and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God am with them and that they, the house of Israel are my people, declares the Lord God. You are my flock, the sheep, of my pasture, my people. I'm your God declares the Lord God big chapter a lot of good stuff in here oh yeah a lot of good gave stuff me,
1: yeah. gave me chills for sure because like like uh, the difference about our Shepherd is that our Shepherd like knows this all by name he knows this all by spirit and heart right it's not like he's using this example of like actual sheep in a field and a Shepherd Um, But it's so much deeper than that. But it's still a beautiful thing because he's saying like, like it it is an actual big thing to have one sheep missing. You have ninety nine and then to leave them to go find that one sheep. And I feel like this is also kind of a big warning for those that, uh, you know, would 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 kind of consider themselves shepherd of people how it's like hey you better make sure that you're taking care of them and not yourself because if they're like if you're all fat and they're not eating like that's a big problem you know if you're clothed or with their wool and they're cold and you're not feeding them that's a big problem and uh yeah it's it's kind of a it's kind of a like hey this is kind of a ego check kind of thing
0: yeah absolutely and this here in ezekiel's day um this is when, you know, I don't know exactly when Ezekiel 34 was written in the lifespan of Ezekiel, but during his lifespan, over uh, three different installments, Babylon deported the southern house of Judah into exile. And so the, what uh, we see back in earlier chapters of Ezekiel is that the leaders, the priests, the rulers, the elders of Israel had transgressed the covenant. The Levites even also had transgressed the covenant to the point where they were unfaithful shepherds over Israel. And they were fleecing the flock and not doing justice and abusing and ruling with with violence and cruelty. And so it was, uh, they were also worshiping Baal as well. So like it was a problem, right? They had, they had gone astray. Their heart had grown cold due to lawlessness. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting that we have in the prophecy with in Genesis chapter 49, from Jacob to Judah talking about, you know, this, this idea that the, you'll have the rulership until Shiloh comes. Mm -hmm. Well, that, we're going to see about that because right here in Ezekiel thirty-four, Yahweh is promising through the prophet Ezekiel, He's promising Israel, I will, like, because of all this corruption that you're not treating your people right, you're an unfaithful shepherd. I'm going to send a good shepherd to you. And this is what this is expounding upon this this prophecy from Jacob to Judah that through his line you're going to see this Shiloh come, which is a which is an idiomatic phrase or reference, pseudonym phrase for the for the Messiah, the great ruler over them that rules in peace. And so this is a, you know, Ezekiel is expounding upon what Jacob had already prophesied about this. And he's talking about the problem of their their leadership, which is they don't have good shepherds. They're scattering the sheep. They're causing them to go into exile and be invaded by the other countries because they're not leading them into the covenant behavior. Because that covenant behavior gave them the protection of Yahweh to be to stay within the, the, the sheepfold and not be scattered by the you know, the the prey and not be considered prey. Um, So there's, yeah, it's just a huge chapter here. I'll look at the summary real quick and kind of go through some of this here. Just talking about how Ezekiel received a word of prophecy against the irresponsible and unfaithful shepherds of Israel, which are the elders, priests, and rulers who had led the people astray and caused them to be scattered amongst the nations. Yahweh promised Israel's scattered sheep that he will judge between the individual sheep and will gather them, regather them from the countries to his land on the day of the Lord, that was something interesting. That I don't, I don't know if you caught that or not. That was back in verse um, twelve. As a shepherd looks for a scattered sheep when he's among the flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places to which they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. So this is that, just like Deuteronomy chapter thirty verse four just like Zechariah chapter one, just like Matthew 24, 29. This is this whole concept of the great resurrection, the regathering. The angels are sent out to gather his people from the four corners, from the four winds of heaven and the four corners of the earth from everywhere under the firmament to which they've been scattered. Deuteronomy 30 verse four. Mm-hmm. And this day is considered according to Zephaniah and other places, a day of darkness, Joel chapter one and two, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds. Um, because if there's a lot going on that day, there's a lot of destruction and, and, there's there's a lot going on. So okay. this is wonderful here as Ezekiel's telling them, like the, here's the promise. Look at the end of this story. Like I'm going to regather all of you guys, even though it's going to be an ominous day, um, it's going to be a wonderful day for you because you're going to be all regathered from where you've been scattered. And so this is just a wonderful promise that Yahweh is giving them um, all the way back in Ezekiel's day because it's always the same story, right? I mean the resurrection is just part of the covenant. It's 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 inherently built in. Uh, Yahweh also promised the scattered sheep of Israel he will appoint a ruler over them, a shepherd who will faithfully lead them in the authority of a king. And that's the idea of that Genesis 49 prophecy to, J- to Judah and his descendants is that the scepter of leadership will stay with them until Shiloh comes. Well, Shiloh is that reference to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. What happens when the Messiah comes?
1: This is the exact thing. All the sheep are, uh, that are scattered are brought up uh, uh, unto him
0: well I, I meant to say uh, in the first coming of the messiah okay we see yeshua show up mm-hmm. the corruption of the levites caused him to be falsely accused and murdered and then he's resurrected and given the authority of king and high priest even Perfect. though he's taken to heaven you mm-hmm. see what i mean so and then the nation of israel is uh, 40 years after they're destroyed by the romans they're scattered amongst the nations mm-hmm. to where they've lost authority over themselves but they now have a king of kings and lord of lords, he's just in heaven, he hasn't come down to okay. regather them yet. Okay. So, like, we see that with Yeshua's lifespan, Genesis, that you know, the prophecy to Genesis 49 to Jake to Judah is fulfilled, and this second coming prophecy here in Ezekiel 34 is not yet fulfilled. So, it's huh. kind of interesting of that. But he's promising them, I know, I know the problem, like, I can see what's the problem in Israel. You got bad shepherds, I'm gonna send you my good shepherd to you and he'll become a king over you in the, in this, in the moniker of David.
1: Uh-huh. So just
0: for everyone watching out there, we've talked about this a few other times on Kingman Context where we try to explain the, like the ancient custom of kingdoms was that they, if they had a great King, whatever that dude's name was, he became like the, the standard, the moniker that, that subsequent Kings after him would use to be like, you know, I'm, I'm just as mighty as Sargon. You know, so then you would have Sargon one, two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You see, I mean, even though like Sargon two, his real name wasn't Sargon, but he took on that moniker because that was a great king in the eyes of the people, and he wanted to be like that in the eyes of people.
1: It's almost kind of like what the the Catholic Church does, with the popes choosing their names after the other popes, but exactly more of a twisted way. But
0: yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it's definitely where that tradition came from. So this is why. Even though the prophecy is speaking about Yeshua of Nazareth, hes we know he's the Messiah. He's the one that comes back to rule the nations. He's the one that is the good shepherd, as we're going to read in John chapter 10. But Yahweh is referring to him as, my servant David will be king over you, will be prince over you. You see what I mean? So, oh, yeah. It's just a wonderful promise from the Father, just, to, just reminding them that he has a plan for them. He also promised the scattered sheep of Israel they will no longer be prey for other nations or receive scorn, That also happens when they're glorified at the resurrection and put into a place of rulership underneath the authority of Yeshua. Yahweh promised he will be their God and they will be his people at that time. This is the the promise of the covenant. He repeats just over and over and over. You know, this is all all the way back to Jubilees chapter one. Um, He continually promises them. If you obey my covenant and walk in my commandments, I'm going to resurrect you, bring you to my land. I will be your God. You will be my people. So, yes, we're still his people today, but we're practicing for all these promises to be fulfilled for us. You know what I'm saying? But when that time comes and these promises are fulfilled, you're resurrected and brought into his house, his inheritance, the, your inheritance, which is his house, the, the the great garden that he promised them. right? Mm-hmm. We, did we see that other? Um, did you see that verse?
1: Yeah, no, that was really cool. I thought about that because you had said in another time of like having uh, fruits of your own labor. Um, and so when I saw that, like that garden, I'm thinking about like, because um, I think I, I don't at least in my and what I hold is true, like when we go to heaven, it's not like we're just going to be wispy things floating there, you know, humming a, you know, vibrant to, to praise the father. Um, though I think obviously there'll be worship. Like, I think we'll still like use our hands and garden and stuff. Like, I don't think he's going to take all that away. I don't think yeah. um, that's the issue. So like thinking about that and how amazing it would be to be in that, you know, that wonder of this, of this, uh, of this garden, you know, and, um, yeah. it's, it's raised up from renown. Like how beautiful is that? Like this thing must be pretty amazing to, to get that kind of verbiage.
0: Yeah, it was the new Jerusalem, right? It's going to be this amazing return of the Garden of Eden, like we've tried to explain in multiple broadcasts um, previously, where it's the kingdom of the garden that we see in Genesis 3 that's retracted during the days of the flood. It's brought back down through the firmament, as we see in Revelation 21 as the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 54 um, expounds about how you know that process, that transitionary process and how it enlarges its tent pegs and it's made bigger to accommodate for all of its its children that were brought into it, those who would participate in the first resurrection. And so therefore this is this wonderful promise that, you know, a lot of people kind of skip over in the book of Ezekiel because they get to like the latter chapters of Ezekiel where it goes into great depth about the temple, you know? And so they, they kind of forget that he's already promising them, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you into this wonderful place where the the animals will not try to attack you. Mm-hmm. You can just, like, as it says, in I think it's what verse 25. Um sorry, one second. Uh yeah, I will make them a covenant of peace and rid the land of wild animals so they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. So like right now you can't just go out and sleep in the forest, guys. Like yeah, I don't recommend anybody unless you get a tent and a fireplace and some protection, I don't suggest you just go out and just lay down in the forest and just chill. Like you may not live very long so, so like he's
1: a peaceful thing right to just be out in the in the forest and find a nice little cozy spot and just be like yeah, i'm gonna sleep here and not have to worry about anything coming and hunting you down so,
0: right or just waking up with a bunch of fire ants on you right? yeah so like yeah they, or a badger come up and nod on your eyeball like yeah there's so many different things but big small in forests that want to kill you um because uh-huh. they're 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 not intentionally malicious towards you they just are ignorant they're just doing their natural thing they just think oh there's a food source not moving i'm gonna go get it so you know this is what he's promising you there'll be a time when you can just go out and this of course is my understanding he's talking about the actual huge territory of the new jerusalem like this beautiful place where it's a garden where you can just go and just chill just lay down and take a nap if you want you know i mean
1: and what's kind of interesting is i'd like to kind of dive a little bit into this rid of the land of wild animals because it's like maybe he's he's they're not wild anymore that's how he's ridding the land of wild animals he's, he's going be like okay wake up wake up wake up i don't know like i i'm a big narnia fan just because i think there's so much beauty in it uh, there's a lot of gravel stuff in it as well but um specifically in the first book uh the magician and his nephew Uh, When Narnia is being created, there's like some beavers here and some beavers here and uh, Aslan is like, oh, you are going to be, you know, living, talking animals and these other ones are just wild animals. Um, So it kind of makes me think of that and, you know, going back to the garden and being able to to. Probably enjoy these creatures because these creatures aren't having to worry about us killing them and you know us being fearful of them, etc. So, anyways, I'm sorry, if yeah. watch it, but it's no, something.
0: that's good, yeah, that's that's the idea is like that's something that we internally would love to all do, but realize that you just have to prepare a lot of stuff just to go on a camping trip to where you can feel safe and be safe in a situation, and even still yeah you'll have bears come through and and ravage campsites for food and and like it's funny my uh my wife was camped in the in the Colorado Rockies a few years ago, and she was telling me that uh I think it was her and her mother they were up there camping and just the two of them and they were you know deep in the woods and they were going you know looking for crystals as well not crystal digs and um they came back to their campsite and some cows had like came through and destroyed their campsite. <laughs> Cows. Just some like wild roaming, you know, pasturing cows that they let roam in the, in the Colorado Rockies. Uh-huh. And that, that, that apparently she, if I remember the story, right. The cows initially, like before they even left the campsite to go explore, uh-huh. they saw the cows coming close and they kind of tried to shoo them away with like the stick, you know, uh-huh. like, you know, go, go, go on, you know? And she said there was this one cow that was just kind of like staring her down, like giving her the evil eye, you know? Uh-huh. And then she was like, man, I really think that cow's going to mess with our campsite. But then they, they ended up leaving anyway. And when they came back, their campsite was just
1: completely trampled. Wow.
0: So yeah,
1: that, that cow. Are you trying to brush me with a stick? I'll, I'll show you what's good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Walk away from your campsite see what happens.
1: Yeah.
0: So like these animals, they know to some degree, like they know, um, they have a sense of territory. Uh, they, they have, you know, consistent trails and patterns they use to go find food. Uh Uh, to sustain themselves and their little ones. And so, you know, the father's just promising, just like Adam and Eve experienced in the garden of Eden, that this beautiful, harmonious, perfect concept of creation will be returned to where there'll be a covenant of peace in the land. Just like we see in Isaiah chapter 11, right? The, the baby can even play near the snake's hole and not have to worry, right? The, the young child can lead the cow um, or hang out near the the wolf or the lion, right? And it's not going to be it's not going to be a big deal because the animals will know they can't hurt mankind. They're not going to hurt. Man- they won't be afraid of mankind anymore. That was one of the consequences, if you will, of the flood. It seems like yep. uh, it seems like after that time, the animals were told that they would fear man, and so. Um, also, when they, when,
1: I was just gonna say. Yeah. I also feel like that has to do with uh, what the Watchers were doing to animals, right? So. Okay clean ones got uh, like, I know it's clean and unclean, but when they got those on the boat after that point, he's like, I can't have this happening anymore. So the animals now need to stay away from humans as much as they can type of thing. But just a random thought.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird, that's why, you know, we even have the term domesticated, right. Where it means they've been grown up around uh, humans and they're, you know, become familiar with them so that they don't view them as an enemy. So like that enmity between animal kind and mankind is going to go away in the garden of Eden. And you can just chill. Like you just wake up and who knows, maybe a, a lion come up and laid down next to you and took a nap. Yeah, with you. You know what I mean, yeah.
1: And I feel like that's the most reasons why lions attack humans now anyways. Right. Cause you're this random thing that they barely ever see. And you, they're like, what are you? And they just happen to have a bite that's too strong for our human body to contain. Right. But they're like, they're not, I think most, most animals, like even predators aren't malicious in what they're doing. They don't want to kill the gazelle because they hate the gazelle. It's like, if they don't, they die, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But when that, that goes away, when they don't have to fear us like snakes, right? Snakes bite at people because they're scared. It's not like they don't want to try to eat us. Um, so I think, yeah, that fear is going to clear up a lot of stuff uh, with our relationship for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the Father is going to just bring peace in all regards to all of creation and all creatures. It's it's truly amazing. And it reminds me of Romans chapter 8, where it says all of creation groans in eager anticipation of the revealing of the sons of God. That's those who take part in the this, this first resurrection, you know, because we bring peace to the earth as we come and rule over it from within the new Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, from the land of peace that we, we exist in. So, yeah, it's a beautiful promise. Uh, Yahweh also promised the scattered sheep of Israel. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's the wrong one here. Um. Yeah. Okay. So we already went through the summary in Ezekiel, mm-hmm. and uh, was there anything else in that chapter that that you thought of that stuck out to you?
1: Nope. But I all a lot. But yeah, we can keep moving. <laughs>
0: uh, just real quick for people watching, I'm going to show you guys just little indicators here. As we already talked about, he calls this place a garden. He says it's a land of peace, and he calls it his hill, and makes it a blessing. Verse 26. So just little things like that, guys. We talk about the gospel of the kingdom all the time. Um, and we try to show people how the prophets have always been talking about the gospel of the kingdom, right? And this kingdom that we see referred to in New Jerusalem in Revelation was also considered his holy hill, like we see in, in Psalms 15 or Ezekiel 34. It's called his hill, it's called his mountain, the chief mountain in Isaiah chapter two.
1: Yep, that's um,
0: Zechariah chapter six like it's everywhere guys. It's everywhere. It's it's the story It is the the former Garden of Eden which had mountains and streams and rivers and trees inside of it It wasn't just a little bitty plot of of a couple of acres of a tree orchard. Like it's not that type of garden It was an entire kingdom actually has a walled-off structure around it and that is returning It's gonna be made bigger and better to accommodate everyone for the first resurrection so these are little little indicators to hopefully help you look for, as you go through the law and the prophets, and you see that it's the same story from start to finish. And this is why when Yeshua shows up, he says, "I must go to the towns and preach the gospel of the kingdom. This is why I was sent." It says this in Luke chapter 40, chapter four, verse 43 and 44. So he is preaching the same message as all the prophets. This is the message of the Father. This is the message the father wants to tell everybody is, look, I've got a place I'm going to I'm going to resurrect you and bring you into my house. It's called the paradise of God. And we get to live there in peace and security. And from there, that will be the central point on the earth from which you will reign over all the other nations outside of that garden, outside of that city. To which you will establish peace throughout the entire earth. But there's a center point where you will live. And that is the amazing hill of God, the amazing city of God, the heavenly country, the fort, if you will, like a lot of people don't realize in ancient times, Vader, the fort, like there was a lot of people that lived in forts. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a place where they stowed weapons and cannons and things, or, or, you know, there was barracks there too. There was a lot of people that lived there. And in ancient times, these cities that were all walled off, that was a defensive military concept. And there was entire nations that lived inside those walled off cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so same concept with the new Jerusalem, it's going to be a place that cannot be attacked successfully and it will be a place of refuge and it will be a place of the feasts of God are held. It's the wonderful house of God where all the resurrected saints get to live forever. Um, so anyway, I just I could go on I could go on forever about it. Oh, it's wait, so cool. Wait. Like
1: how it defends itself. Like how amazing is that? It's like they we don't even need to have people standing on the walls to say, hey, look out. It's like the the city itself is trying to keep um, this promise true. You know what I mean? It's yeah. amazing.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You see a lot of movies, whether futuristic or um, or ancient, where you you see like well, mostly futuristic movies, well, they'll show like a a huge base of some sort that has its own like turret guns that pop up and shoot at stuff you know and these are they're automatic sensors that detect enemies and things and yet apparently in the you know according to the promise to the new jerusalem in isaiah 54 and then we see fulfilled in revelation 20 when satan tries to attack it after the thousand years um it just calls fire down from that and it burns all of its attackers like Angels don't suit up for battle. The resurrected saints don't suit up for battle. Jesus doesn't get on his white horse again and suit up for battle. Everyone inside is still just chilling. Who knows that some people could even be asleep during that time? Like we're reading Ezekiel thirty-four. People yeah. are going. To be
1: like, did someone? Did someone just shut a car door outside or something? <laughs> what was that
0: noise? <laughs> right. What was that black, bright flash of light out there? Fire coming down from the heaven from the Yeah. And yeah, someone else is like, yeah, that's Satan again, but he's, we're going to, this is the last time we're letting this happen. (laughs) You know, So yeah, it's going to be interesting paradigm for sure.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Uh, I think John chapter 10 is our last pairing. Do you want to take that one?
1: Yep. Here we go. All right. Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen for his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes up ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never uh, but but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will flee from him because they do not recognize his voice. Jesus spoke to them using this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So he said to them again, "'Truly, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy.' I have come that he may have life and have it in all its fullness. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and the sheep are not his own. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf pounces on them and scatters the flock. The man runs away because he is a hired servant and is unconcerned for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me, I know that the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in as well and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason the father loves me is that I laid down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Again, there was division among the Jews because of Jesus' message. Many of them said, he is a demon possessed and insane. Why would we listen to him? But others replied, these are not the words of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple courts in Solomon's colonnade. So the Jews gathered around him and demanded, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I have already told you, Jesus replied, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify on my behalf. But because you are not my sheep, you refuse to believe. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. At this, the Jews again picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus responded, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me for? We are not stoning you for any good work, said the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, you are a man, declare yourself to be God. Jesus replied, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If ye called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, then what about the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? How then can you accuse me of blasphemy for stating that I am the son of God? If I am not not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I am doing them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works themselves, so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. At this, they tried again to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had uh, first been baptizing, and he stayed there. Many came to him and said, although John never performed the sign, everything he said about this man was true. And many in that place believed in Jesus.
0: All right. Thank you, brother.
1: My pleasure. Yeah, this is a great chapter.
0: So we have confirmation here. Jesus himself. He's like, look, I'm the one that Ezekiel was talking about. I'm the good shepherd. Here I am. I told you, you didn't believe me. Look, I'm doing all these miracles. And what I love about this is that he talks about, he does them in his father's name. Mm -hmm. You know, like he's, I'm, I'm rolling in the authority of my father and I'm proving it with all these miracles. I'm doing every town I go to left and right. I'm healing people in droves, casting out demons, I'm preaching the, the actual law and the prophets and all these good works. Like, I'm trying to tell you, like, the only reason I'm doing this is because my father gave me the authority to do this, you know? Yeah. So, like, the, these uh, haters that are hating on him, um, they don't care what he's saying, really. They're just looking for a way to accuse him, as we see previously in John chapter 7 and 8. Um, and this is such a big chapter. Real quick, we got uh, actual three pages of summary because there's just so much to kind of bullet point here. Uh, Yeshua used the metaphor of a shepherd and a sheepfold to teach good leadership. This is why he keeps talking about the good shepherd lays his life down. The hired hand runs away if there's if there's danger. Um, he also talked about, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeshua explained that the sheep only know and follow the true shepherd's voice and not an impostor's, such as a thief or a robber. So this is the famous passage we hear quoted all the time, you know, that his actual sheep know his voice. Um, Yeshua taught that a hired hand runs when the wolf arrives, but a good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And Yeshua announced he is the good shepherd sent by the Father. Um, Yeshua explained he has sheep in more than one sheepfold and he will bring them in two, united under his leadership. So, what do you think that means? There's a lot of theories about this out there, the statement that he says, I got sheep in more, more than this fold and I'll bring them in
1: too. So I, I think that those are the ones that have been scattered. Um, and so like, even we get kind of at the end of this, that he's at uh, Hanukkah, the feast of dedication or uh, wherever you would like to call it. And, um, and I think that's kind of like, it almost seems random, but to me, it's almost like he, that he's talking about this and he's doing exactly what he's talking about. He's going out uh, to those other places of the fold where the sheep would be, and and he's searching them out, and that's why he's healing and 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 prophesying and doing the things that he's doing is he's he's saying if you're my sheep, you'll see me, you'll know me, you'll hear my voice, and know who I am, and that's why he's going around to all these places to find those sheep. Uh, that that's what it says to me.
0: Yeah, it's part of the prophecy of the Messiah. Isaiah fifty-seven nineteen, he will draw them near. That means those close proximity to them and also those from afar. So this is the one of the prophesied attributes, if you will, or mission, mission accomplishments of the Messiah is that, yes, the the scattered house of Israel, he goes after them, he, he's going to bring them in too. Uh, this is his disciples help him with that mission, you know, um, throughout the time. We're still helping him with that mission. That mission continues until the resurrection, right? This is why we're we're gathered, as we just read from Ezekiel 34, regathered to his land from everywhere under the heaven we've been scattered from all the different countries. So this Mm -hmm. was one of the beautiful things that is enabled by Yeshua going and getting resurrected and taken into his priesthood. So now he has access to the Spirit of God in his priesthood position from heaven, where he can drop it anywhere on the earth that he wants to, to help facilitate repentance and conversion to bring in more sheep, or to bring in sheep that or wayward, or you know, struggling, or whatever. He's got that awesome shepherding ability in his ultimate position of power as the high priest of the covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just a beautiful, beautiful little reiteration here, and I love it. it. It ties in with this next little bullet point here that he, and the reason why he is given this ability is because he was willing. And he says, Yeshua explained that his father loves him because he is willing to lay his life down so he could be resurrected because the point of him enduring the cross was to get to the resurrection so that he can step into this priesthood of power and and drop the spirit and effectuate change and bring hearts to him with his goodness. Like this is this wonderful, like I call it the shortcut. Like the father is, you know, creating the ultimate, uh, the ultimate hero character in the game. You know, like he's got all, he's got all the, all the weapons and all the health, you know what I mean? Like he can, yeah,
1: he's, he's, he's stat stacked. He's mid yeah. to the best uh, that you can possibly do.
0: <laughs> yeah. And like, no one can take him down. Um, and, but he had to endure selflessly giving up his life to endure the torture of the cross in order. So he can get to the resurrection. And he, even before that happens, he explains my father loves me because I'm willing to do this. Now, obviously the father loves him anyway, but the point of this is he was willing. He accepted it. I'm sure whatever conversation they had before he came to be incarnate through the womb of a woman, he accepted this role also, right? So he willingly went to the cross. This is why he prays in Matthew 26. It's not my will, but your will be done. If there's any other way that I can accomplish this, let this cup pass from me. But if not, don't let my will get in the way, let your will be done, you know? So like he willingly lays his life down in ultimate sacrifice of his personal will and his, and you know, at the threat of tremendous pain Mm -hmm. so that he can actually get to the resurrection, be glorified and be the high priest, King ruler and leader over Israel, the good shepherd that can lead people properly and bring in as many children to the father as possible. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful sacrifice by our savior. Um, Yeshua also explained that his father gave him the authority to lay his life down and then take it up again. And I, I put in parentheses here those implications. Uh-huh. Um, and this is just, you know, it's beautiful. So at the Feast of Dedication, the Jews demanded Yeshua tell them if he was the Messiah. Yeshua told them I, he was already. And he said his deeds done in his father's authority testify to that truth. So this is this kind of back and forth. You see this is actually quite a bit with the Pharisees and the Jews. They, they just, they're just trolling, man. Like it doesn't matter what he says. They don't care. They're not listening. They're not, they're not taking him seriously. Or, I mean, or they're not trying to take him seriously. Like they're, this reminds me of like when I have, de- you know, debates or I have conversations with uh, atheists when it doesn't matter what you say, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what proof you show them to them. It doesn't, it's not proof in their mind. Um, they won't be convinced by anything because it's not about logic. It's all about emotion. They've yep. been swayed by some sort of demonic influence, and their emotions are tied to some very, very bad non-scriptural doctrine or thought or teaching or perception of God, right? Some, some lie that's a perception of God that they've emotionally attached themselves to. We see this a lot with cosmology conversations yep. as well. And I think so, it's,
1: it's so tied to the ego. Right. And you brought up emotion because it's literally a, attached to the emotion side of it. But uh, wait
0: people- did you did you say like ego, the living planet? <laughs>
1: no, but I think it's really interesting that they did, that they use that as, uh, you know, uh, in the Guardians of the Galaxy. I know he's in the comic and everything, but specifically uh, brought that up, but it's literally a battle with your ego. And like, for me with specifically with, and cos- uh, cosmology, I like, I was really like, emotionally, I was so hurt. Like I had told, I had used, and I said this the other day, like I had used um heliocentric apologetics to to show the glory of the Father, right? Yeah. And so um it's it's very easy to tie certain ideas and thoughts to your ego and hold on to them. Um, and that's that's obviously we see that in scripture, how it gets it gets uh, a lot of people in trouble, specifically to these Jews. You can see the contempt in their heart and their questions. Um, Because they literally have seen blind men see, they've seen uh, sick people healed in front of their eyes. They've seen these miraculous things, and they're still questioning it, Uh, which lets you know it's it's not about the fact, as you said, logically. Okay, there's no way a person can do this. This must be the Son of God. Um, They just say, "Well, no," just tell us plainly. And he's like, "How many times do I have to do that?" So it's it's very frustrating, but interesting at the same time. How that behavior can happen.
0: It reminds me of that famous interview from Jordan Peterson with that British interviewer lady. Do you guys remember that one where it's, yeah. Like where she just kept like twisting his words and he'd be like, no, I think women should be respected. I think it's good. And she's like, so you're saying that women should be subjugated. And he's (laughs) like, no, I didn't say that at all. In fact, I was saying that women, you know,
1: (laughs) it's like, but she's putting words in her mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So, like,
0: you know, previously in Yeshua's story here, that you know he, he, uh, the Pharisees accuse him of being demon possessed, and even in this feast of dedication, even in this time here, some of the people accuse him of having a demon, and he's, you know, in other supplementary gospels, he talks in that moment about like, how can you accuse me of have a demon? house to fight against self? Can't stand, Satan can't cast out his own men out of out of a person like that would be counterproductive, and be careful. That you attribute something that God's doing to Satan. Like that's blasphemy the Holy Spirit, man. Like he's he's going here exemplifying the goodness of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit just flowing through Yeshua everywhere he goes to heal people wonderfully. Their lives are changed forever. He's teaching them sound doctrine. And you got this group of people that are just haters and they're just coming around just like they're even willing to blaspheme God's spirit because they hating on him so much. And this is just this story never goes away, I guess. I mean, like we still to see this in the same modern day today with people. Oh, you're on mute, really.
1: Sorry. Yeah. Literally no difference. It's like, um, the, it, and it's like that same ego, that, that same emotional thing that you have to bat theology, whatever it is, whether it's quote unquote science or scripture that can totally lead you down to these kind of parts. And, and, and the thing is, is like, uh, as I was kind of saying before, I was u- using heliocentric to, you know, to, to uh, use apologetics for the scripture. Um, so how e- how easily uh, something like that, which is like literally of the devil, it's pagan beliefs that I'm tying into. But in myself, I think I'm doing right. So it's like that's a gut check for me to be like, you know, like as I'm, you know, uh, diving more and more into Torah self. Okay. Am I doing, you know, am I, am I letting any of that stuff be like, Oh, it's okay. You know, it's this or this. And um, cause you can see that in their behavior, right? When they specifically are uh, saying like, do you have a demon in in you? Um, it's almost like uh, it's almost like how a bad person would see what a good person is doing is bad and vice versa. Right. Like, they are seeing miracles in front of their eyes, and the first thing that it comes to is it must be demons. Um, so it's almost that they they associate power with demons, um, and they don't even know that. Like they, I don't think they know that. And their question, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, he's. Th- this is why he's teaching, right? He knows that these people are very confused in the theology. This we've talked about this in the previous that. Uh, this is what Matthew tries to tell us in Matthew four about by quoting isaiah chapter 9 that yeshua shows up to a land of darkness right and that talking about the theology that the they were completely had bad shepherds right this is why he, that he goes after the pharisees the bad shepherds because they were teaching them wrongly leading them astray leading them into confusion and um and causing consequently their hearts to grow cold yeshua shows up in this environment and is is trying to warm their hearts by teaching them a true sound doctrine now this was our these people were already prepped if you will by john the baptist we're actually going to talk about that at the very end of this chapter mm-hmm. um but ultimately he's still dealing with a lot of people in darkness in their mind and thoughts even to the point where they're demon possessed because more than likely they've took place in rituals that were happening at temples around the land and so there's you know there's a lot of issues here that he's having to encounter not just the corrupt leadership but the the, the vast Corruption and confusion of the people So here at this Feast of Dedication uh, The Jews demanded Yeshua tell them if he was a Messiah He's like look I already told you just at least Trust these deeds I've been trying to show you But the Jews tried to stone him for Claiming he was the son of Yahweh the son of God Now this is interesting in that In that passage I'm going to try to scoot back Here real quick Um, Because he tells them They're mad at him right they're like how dare you Uh, what, What verse was it
1: I try to grab him uh says
0: right here, he says, Um, why are you stoning me? Which you know, what good work are you stoning me? And they're like, No, we're not stoning you because you're good works, because of blasphemy, because you are a man, declare yourself to be God. Now, again, just like we talked about at the very beginning of this of this tour portion today in Genesis 48. Who's deciding to capitalize that G? Because look what look what Yeshua says in verse 36. He says, I'm and we'll get to verse 34 and 35 because he's actually quoting scripture at him, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. But he, says in verse 36, then about whom the one the father sanctified and sent to the world. How then can you accuse me of blasphemy for stating that I'm the son of God? So, you know, lovingly to all the Trinitarians out there, guys, he clearly clears it up for you right here. He's not claiming to be God, the father himself. He says it right here in verse 36 as he expounds. I'm claiming to be the son of God. The father sent me into the world. The father sanctified me and sent me into the world. I'm the son of God. But the Pharisees are like, you claim it to be God. So for one, that should be a lowercase G. Okay. He's not claiming to be the father. He's told them over and over and over again. I am the son of God. They all knew the father wasn't supposed to come. The father was going to send his servant, Isaiah 53. They didn't, even the Pharisees knew Yahweh wasn't going to be coming, but Yahweh was sending his servant. That was the whole point of the Messiah. This is why they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? It's right here in the conversation. So this strange Trinitarian infusion where they try to assume the Pharisees were, were assuming that Jesus was, was claiming to be the father. Or, you know, or, or the way they try to take this word God and just make it this all-encompassing idea um, that has no definition. It's very clear. Yeshua is claiming, I am the son of God. My father sent me and the Pharisees are trying to stone him for claiming to be Elohim Mm -hmm. for claiming to be theos, not the father. They know he's not trying to be the father, but because he claims I was sent by the father and they're sitting there going, this dude was born of Joseph and Mary. He comes from Nazareth. We know his family descendancy. What is he saying? Mm -hmm. He's claiming to be Elohim. He's claiming to be an angel. We know he's not, he's a liar. So they're stoning him for blasphemy because they think that he is claiming something in error that God didn't do. But God, because they're not under there, they also have bad theology taught to them. Yeah. Just like we see seven chapters earlier in the conversation with Nicodemus, one of their lead teachers of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, didn't even understand the promise of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And he's going to to ask him truly are you the son of god too right and then we have this wonderful exposition from john chapter 3 verses 12 through 19 where yeshua explains to him yes i'm the son of god i'm sent to be dark you know light to the darkness and i'm i'm you know whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life and he's having to teach nicodemus one of their teachers this thing too so in this moment here they're not claim; they're claiming like how can you dare claim to be elohim you're just a man how, how dare you? And he's like, look, I, yeah, I know I'm a man, but I was sent by the Father. This is what Peter, or uh, excuse me, Paul tries to tell us in 1 Timothy 3.16. This is the mystery of godliness, is that he was manifested in the flesh, because he existed before he's manifested in the flesh. This is why the Pharisees, who have bad theology, don't understand the along the prophets. Who knows if they've read Enoch or not. They don't seem to understand that this was always the way it was, that the Son of Man was with the Father before the sun, moon, and stars are created. Was was, was appointed for this task in the presence of the angels during creation week. And that was announced to all the angels as Enoch explains to us. And he was the one that was going to be sent to become the high priest of the covenant of mankind. Well, that means he's got to, there's got to be a transition point where God takes him from his Elohim state, his glorified body, his immortal angel like body and puts him into the body of flesh of a man, which is what Paul explains to us. In 1 Timothy 3.16, that he was manifested in the flesh. It's what John, in John chapter 1, explains to us in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Pharisees didn't even understand this. They're thinking this guy, that, whom they know has a mother and father, that he was claiming to be an angel or an Elohim status, a God. Now, Jesus doesn't just write out say, oh, by the way, I'm not an angel. In fact, he plays, I think he's playing with him a little bit right here where he responds in verse 34. And he says, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. So who's making this statement? I've said you are gods. Vader Bear, it's up for you. What, what would you think?
1: Uh, so it's, uh, well, obviously Yeshua is saying it, but it's the, isn't it the father saying that to us?
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeshua is quoting the father. Psalm 82. To whom the law came. I've said you were gods. Who what does that mean? What was the promise of the covenant? Exodus 19, 5 and 6.
1: To follow the 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 commandments will be like gods. Like we will get that promise. That's what he's talking yes. about. Yes.
0: That's been it's 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 inherently like if you don't understand the most basic fundamental of the resurrection in, given to you in the covenant then you don't understand that you were promised to become like the angels. This is why he tries to tell him on Luke 20 verse 36. Don't you know, at the end of this age, there's worthy to be considered in the resurrection will be made like the angels. Mm-hmm. Like he's talking, he's talking to the Sadducees at that point. Cause they didn't understand it either.
1: And he's so, even more so showing who he is because he's speaking it in confidence, right? Like right then at that time, he did not have his uh, immortal body. Right. But he was speaking it like this is authority because it's the truth. Right. Like at that time, though, he was flesh. He he knew that he was like God. Right. Even though he was also the son of God. And I just wanted to point out real quick where he, it even further goes down and says in John thirty-eight forty-two, it says, um, so that you may, uh, know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Never one time. Like they say, he does say, I am God. He doesn't ever say I am Abba. I am right. father. And he right. could have totally used that word if he wanted to.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's very simple. But what it really is revealing to us is that the, the, the confusion, just like with Nicodemus, who's of the Pharisees, right? These, these people that are talking to him, they're also confused about the most fundamental promise of the covenant, which is the resurrection and what that means. This is why Nicodemus is like, well, how can a woman go, how can a person go back inside a mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus is like, bro, I'm not talking about that. Let's go yeah. ahead and push hard reset on your brain and let me teach yeah. you some accurate theology here. So like, this is this is like a huge problem. This is the same problem we deal with today with Trinitarians who continually just take say what he says? He was the Pharisees accused him of being God. He must be a God, and you're like, Sigh. what does the word God mean? How does that apply to us at the resurrection? Why did Yeshua say to whom the word came, you are called gods? It doesn't mean you're the Father. It doesn't mean you're you're questioning the divinity of Yeshua to say he's the Son of God. It doesn't mean that you're claiming to have the power of the father to, to, to say that the resurrection you become at like an Elohim status in your nature. That's yeah. the promise of the covenant. So this bad theology that we see being rampant here today amongst churches mm-hmm. literally stems from Pharisaic thought because of their confusion 2000 years ago gets called out in public by Yeshua. And of course, you know, that just makes them want to kill them all the more. Right. Um, so this is a fascinating little encounter here where, you know, he just has to tell him, look, he tells him the father is greater than he is. He came from the father. He's sanctified and sent by the father. He's the son of the father. He's not the father. And the, the word itself promises you that if you <laughs> obey the covenant, you become Elohim, you become Theos, you become like the angels. So it's just fascinating to, to see this exchange, this little interaction here um, where he has to just kind of, School them a little bit, but he does it in such a unique way where he just reminds them that, Hey man, this was the concept of the covenant. And he doesn't just go right out and say, Hey, what are you guys talking about? Don't you guys know that resurrection is promised in the covenant? You mm-hmm. remember how the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees argued about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm
1: saying? Yeah. Yeah, totally.
0: This is why none of them understood it. It's the most fundamental promise of the covenant from God to mankind. Do my behavior. I'll give you eternal life. it's literally like step one, right? So this is how confused they were in their theology. And then their understanding, and these guys claim to be the teachers. So just like in Ezekiel's day, still the same problem in, in Yeshua's day, bad shepherds,
1: nothing new under the sun.
0: So yeah, there's a lot going on in this chapter. It's a huge chapter. Um, Yeshua explained that his father gave him the authority to lay his life. I'm sorry, let me uh, go to the last one here. Yeshua exegeted scripture to teach the accusatory Jews in that crowd the meaning of the word God, according to the promise of the covenant. So, and this is why I love verse 36, because even after he tries to help them understand the scripture to realize they're all promised to become Elohim status at the resurrection, he then goes on to continue to clarify over and over I was sent by the Father, I'm the Son of God. So it, just so they don't get tripped up on their bad usage of the word God and what that means. Yeshua told the accusatory Jews in that crowd to believe in the miracles he had accomplished as proof he was in the authority of Yahweh's Father. Yeshua escaped the angry Jews at the Feast of Dedication and went back across the Jordan to where he had baptized people. And uh, there, many people came to, to Yeshua and believed he was the Messiah based off of John the Baptist's previous testimony about him. Cuz this is where John the Baptist was uh, baptizing people before he was killed. He had a whole bunch of disciples of his own there, and then Yeshua shows up. I don't I don't know why Yeshua goes back to this particular spot. It's kind of like what we're looking at in Genesis 50 with the barrel of Jacob. I don't know why he went across the Jordan to this particular spot, but he did. I don't know why Jesus went across the Jordan to this particular spot again at this point in his life, but he did. It doesn't really tell us, but Anyway, what are your thoughts, brother? I'm sorry, I'm rambling.
1: No, 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 not at all. I enjoy it. Um, yeah, I think there's. A, it's kind of interesting, especially with uh, well the whole thing, but the the end part where it says, "But he escaped their grasp." Like, how, like I don't know how you imagine that, but the, I just amount imagine it as like their mind is so full of gravy. They're like, well, uh, uh. so they're like they want to get him, but they don't understand yet, and so it's like they just. They kind of just like he's like, wait, where did he go? (laughs) I always kind of try to imagine how that actually happened where he escaped their grasp uh, because it says like they tried to seize him, but they couldn't. So it was like almost like they were dumbfounded uh, of what was going on.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Luke chapter four when he's preaching in Nazareth and then the people get so mad. They rise up and push him out to the edge of town to throw him off that cliff. Mm -hmm. And then it says he just walked through the midst of them and left. And you're like, wait a minute, what? How does that like, so wait, they, they corralled him with an angry mob to the edge of town to push him off a cliff. But once they got there, then what, he just walks through the midst of them and leaves and they can't touch him. Like what, they just pushed him out to town. Like what happened, what's going on here? So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It reminds me also, what is it? Um, John chapter, John chapter Um. 16 or 17. Uh, I can't remember the, the verse right now. Um, 17, I believe where he's in Garden of Gethsemane and the the Roman soldiers show up and then they're like, are you, are you Jesus? Now he's like, I am. And they all fall down, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, just, just flexing on them, just showing them, look, you guys can't really take me anywhere. I go because I want to go. I willingly lay down my life. And if I didn't want to go, I'll make all you guys, I'll I'll give you that force push and push all you guys back. (laughs) Like it's, it's crazy. Like, uh, t- can you imagine being like just one of those random dudes in that squad of soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, and you just, you walk up and you're like, Oh, we're supposed to arrest this guy. All right, who's this guy? Some, some Jew that's to cause much problems. Okay. And then like the first time he talks, you're all just like yeah. you all just fall back and you get up and you're like, what are we doing again? dude? Can I, can I leave? Can I go back home? <laughs> it's like, I don't want to arrest this guy.
1: Yeah. Like, uh, some, some, like this is a bad omen guys. Let's just go home. <laughs> yeah. Let's,
0: let's, uh. And it makes me wonder, like, you know, the guy at the the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross who, when Yeshua dies and there's the earthquake and everything. And he looks up and he says, truly, this was the son of God. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder if he was also in the crowd that got force pushed. Ah, garden of yeah. like, the night before, you know, like seeing just like and then, of course, all those soldiers saw Peter take his sword out, slice off the chief priest's assistant's ear. And then Yeshua picked that ear back up and just heal it miraculously, like right there. Like everyone witnessed that and they're yeah. still like, we still got to arrest this guy. Like, what are we
1: doing? <laughs> like, are we sure we want to get alone with this guy? Uh, totally. Like, he,
0: he could literally just reach in and pull my heart out. Probably like, I'm afraid of this dude. <laughs> like what's
1: yeah. uh, another thing that I kind of wanted to bring up uh, is because um, like right now um, I, I'm teaching my daughter, the the 10 commandments and uh, specifically on oh, the second one, you know, have no graven image, um, and it tells you not what to make a grim but th- there's a little like qualifying part there that like any who do do these things to the third and fourth generation, they will hate me. And so you can kind of see the hate in their heart because they've been doing this bad doctrine f- for a good amount of time that when he comes they're they're not, they're not receptive to it. Other than the people that I feel like John the Baptist had softened their hearts where we see at the end of this, like those people are like, wow, like, what John said about this guy is really real. And they finally came to had that, you know, come to Christ moment. Uh, But for the other people, you can see the hardness of their hearts that I believe that specifically um, the second command is kind of talking about how, like, if you teach those to your children that, that they'll hate me for multiple generations. So um, a big kind of big warning there.
0: Yeah. Good point. Yeah. There's really rough, rough generation. Yeshua showed up to like, just, and and the father knew it too like this is the fullness of time this is the the generation he was supposed to show up in and um this was prophesied and says of levi that they uh will uh transgress the covenant his descendants the Levites, the priests will transgress the covenant and uh they will lay hands on the the most high son the son of god sent by the father and so levi is not happy on his deathbed knowing this information that he read from enoch so i think it's fascinating that um there is this understanding of what's coming over and over and over again yeshua in that same boat just like with everyone else that knew prophecy he knew what was he was going to endure Mm -hmm. through the psalm 22 isaiah 53 put them together it's a horrific scene that the servant of god will be falsely uh, abused physically tortured uh, unto death but it was for the point of him becoming the person that could bear the sins of the people right to become that high priest um, and this is just, man, it's, it's a, that's, it's, it's weird because like sometimes in my, in, in my life, I've gone into situations that required courage because I didn't know the outcome. Mm-hmm. But if I knew the outcome was, I was going to die a painful death. Like that's, that takes more courage in my opinion. Oh, yeah, You know what I mean? Now the faith that Yeshua himself exemplifies is that he had to trust the father would, would truly had given him the power to raise himself from the dead, you know, or to be raised from the dead by the power of the spirit, I should say. So like, it's to me, that's yeah. There's just, yeah. Super grateful to our, our Messiah and our high priest.
1: And you can see that the humanistic elements that he shows, like, like we know he's not just an angel in disguise acting like a human that can just easily pass over all temptation. It's like, he is like really struggling with like take this cup away from me father like i really you know but then he's like no not my will the father's will so it's like he's having to keep doubling down on you know on following the father's uh you know commandments um and so much courage because like you said he knew what he was coming up to uh, but obviously the reason why he is who he is is because he also had the faith knowing that this, his father would never forsake him, you know, like that he would be there uh, to, to do. And you can even see that fear. Like, why have you forsaken me? Like that fear of like in that sting of death, that it wasn't going to be, you know, what he thought it was, but sure enough, it was so, uh, so beautiful. So beautiful.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, th- I think, the, the point of Hebrews chapter five to say that, you know, the priest is chosen from amongst men because he can he, he can sympathize with their weaknesses. Like he knows what they went through. You know, he can sympathize with the people. That's why he can uh, once glorified Yeshua on our behalf, goes before the father and attains favor for us, leads us to the resurrection, forgives us of our sins. Like all that is because he's chosen from among us. Another understanding of why, like, I guess that leads to another Peeling back of the bad theology or the or the lack of of good theology that the Pharisees themselves had, because to to understand why the Messiah would be sent as a high priest means you had to understand the qualifiers for a high priest amongst the people. Yeah, what the and if use
1: of high priest was?
0: Yeah, like if and apparently the the Pharisees didn't understand that basic concept of like high priest is chosen from amongst the people he represents. Like that's kind of the point, okay. you know. And and of course, therefore, he that means if if there's a servant sent by the father to become that role, well, then that he's not he can't continue to be an Elohim. Like he has to become in the flesh, be manifest in the flesh, to be a part of that, which why Paul calls it the mystery of godliness, right? Because, like, how does that work from a physics standpoint? He goes from an Elohim nature into a fleshly nature, you know, like that's that's a transition we've never seen happen before in scripture. Absolutely. So it's kind of a special thing, you know. Yeah. But yeah, brother, we could we could probably talk for hours on these.
1: On for these sure, <laughs> it's amazing,
0: so much goodness. But uh, hey, you have a show that you do with another brother, Anthony. It's called Enclosed uh, Biblical. Tell me, ECF, Enclosed Cosmology yep. Fellowship,
1: right? Yep, exactly. Uh, it started out as the Discord. We basically just got uh, together and we're having conversations, um, and we're like, "Hey, why don't we record these?" So um, you know, as a, it was more of a way to get people to our Discord so we can have these great conversations. And uh, uh, for those out there, Sean jumps in. He jumped in last night, and we had some great conversations. So. Um yeah, check out uh, the Discord. Um that, that's where we do a lot of our conversating. We have texts and chats about all different types of subjects. Um, and then um yeah, so and we have the YouTube, but that's just a place where we're kind of going through the Bible, not in a super uh like we we do have focused uh episodes, but not so um super intricate into into scripture. It's it, we're kind of just Skimming the top to get the cream de la cream of of kind of things that we find important to us as we go through it, um, but yeah, we've been really blessed uh, having a great uh, a lot of people on you uh, West uh, uh, and West uh, for uncommon ground that was awesome. We've had uh, Wits it gets it uh, on Austin um, uh, uh, Tommy from that flat fellow. So we get our, our basically our di- idea is to get as many puzzle pieces uh, to the table. Um, and share them with each other and walk in brotherly and sisterly love, um, even though we have difference of views and opinions, uh, but still have a place where we can come together and know that we're, we're all children's of, of, of the most high. So yeah, it's, it's a really awesome community. I suggest y'all joining um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and becoming a part of it. So it's really awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the shout out as well.
0: Yeah. Go check it out guys. Uh, they do a broadcast every Saturday nights. And, uh, also you can jump on their discord for after, after show discussions. So it's pretty, pretty sweet, but yeah, thank you brother for joining me today for helping to discuss and read these portions. And, uh, hopefully they're a blessing to you as they were to me and everyone in the live chat. Appreciate you guys being live chat. Hopefully they're a blessing to you as well. Um, I'm done for the day. I need to go rest.
1: Perfect. All right. Well, it was a pleasure, brother. And, um, until next time, have a great one. And remember, Abba loved you first.
0: All right. Thank you, brother. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.